this morning as we continue to journey through Advent, as we really kind of begin to wrap this up today, we're going to look at the subject of love. Now, if we were to go over to the course of this room and to ask everyone, would you define love for me? Would you give me an understanding of how you conceive, how you would describe love? What we're going to find over the course of kind of moving from section to section and from person to person is that your description of love is going to vary a great deal based upon your experience of it. How has it been for you over the course of your life extending love? How has it been for you over the course of your life receiving or experience love? And so your, your answers to kind of what that is are shaped through your experience. And in the Bible, we come in 1 John 4, 8, we run into God's self-revelation where it tells us simply that God is love. And so some of us, from our experience, we've encountered these radically difficult experiences of love, people withholding love from us, extending love to people and receiving nothing back, or, or in some ways it's just been difficult for us to walk through what it is that, that God is saying there, that God is love. So this morning we're going to seek to kind of unpack this in terms of how has God loved us, and, and what of the world difference does it make to us? Now, if you were to look over the course of the Bible and just kind of look at God's self-revelation and the things that he has done, what you're going to encounter and what you're going to see this morning is that God reveals himself as love, and God acts lovingly towards his creation in a myriad of different ways. And so flip to the book of Genesis. Genesis opens up our Bible and it reports to us, it gives us an account of God going through and creating. And this fantastic thing happens. This creator, God, this all-powerful God, invests himself in the midst of absolutely nothing. And this creator, God, speaks into the vast expanse. And we see over and over again, let there be this and, and let there be that. Let there be light. Let there be waters. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens. And so all this seems somewhat impersonal. This idea that he just kind of speaks and these things happen. But then he comes to the, the, the height of his creative endeavor. He comes to verse 26 and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So the whole time Moses has just been going down through and says, let there be this, let there be this, let there be this. And then he records it, and God says, let us make man in our own image. And so we see that, that God's love is decidedly personal. That God isn't just kind of impersonally standing back and creating. God invests himself in his creation, reveals himself in his creation of humanity, and, and does so in this impossibly loving way. He says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so verse 27 tells us that he does it. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The creator God of the universe stepped into time, and out of the vast expanse, he created all things that we experience, and he created us. And he invested in us the capacity to know him. 
You weren't created to be meandering and wandering without hope and without purpose. You were created with a purpose of knowing him, that in knowing him, you would experience his love, and then in experiencing his love, you might turn then to glorify him in the ways that you live your life. God's love is personal. We also find within the book of Genesis that God's love is decidedly expansive. God's love was not meant to be merely visited upon, kept to, and, and set out apart from all the peoples of the earth, but God's love is decidedly headed towards to engage the nations. God's love finds its way to a man named Abram in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so God visits his love on this this man of a pagan background. There's nothing special. There's nothing unique upon him except for the fact that he radically encounters God's love. And encountering God's love, he left in a commission to follow the dictates, the mandates of that love. He says, you're going to leave this. You're going to head to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Why? Why? Why has God decided to visit his love, his investing of love to this man and to his family? Is it so that he can go around and say, you're never going to guess this, but this amazing thing happened. God has visited his love upon me, and, and I just get to live the greatest life in the world, and I just get to be selfish with it, and I just get to hoard it, and I just get to experience it. No, we see that God has, has given him this proclamation that I'm going to make your name great. Why? So that you might be a blessing. God has placed his name on this man. God has placed his name on their family so that they might go out and communicate who this great God is and exactly what his love entails. Verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God's love is incredibly personal. God created us to know him. He created our neighbors to know him. He created our wayward children to know him. He created our co-workers to know him. He created the most hard-hearted of us to know him. And then he has set his favor and his purpose upon this family so that they might communicate this God desires to know you and this God desires for you to know him. Our God's love is personal. Our God's love is expansive. Man, but there's such great news in the midst of this. As we evaluate our lives and look at ourselves, we we begin to ask this question, but then am I worthy of this God's personal expansive love? And what we find is this God's love is redemptive. God takes this group of people who find their way into the midst of captivity in the midst of slavery to the Egyptians, and and God rescues them, God ransoms them, and he delivers them, and he is headed towards the promised land. And even in the midst of God's fantastic leadership, uh, a cloud of fire, a a column of fire, and a cloud by day, and so they have this visible representation of what God is and of where God is taking them and, and of how God orchestrates all these things for his good purposes, for his glory, and for their safety. Even in the midst of these things, what we find when you get into Exodus 32 is that these people are rebelling. They're rebelling. They have this personal creator God, this all-powerful sovereign in their midst, and they exchange all these things. Chapter 32 tells us for a golden calf. They're decidedly rebellious. They're decidedly set apart from God. 
but the man God has placed in their midst to lead them, this, this human representation of the love of God, Moses begins in chapter 33 to intercede on their behalf and to ask God that he would redeem them, to ask God that he would work in their midst. So they're headed to the promised land, and in verses 14 through 16, we read of Moses' intercession in his conversation with the Lord. It says, and he said, And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from all the people on the face of the earth. God is making his people distinct by virtue of the fact that he is traveling with them, journeying with them in the midst of these things. So we find this people incredibly disobedient, Moses interceding to God on their behalf. And in the midst of this, Moses asks God to reveal himself to him. He says, God, would you show me your glory? Would you give me a a, a picture? Would you give me a greater understanding of who you are? And so what we see in chapter 34 and verse 6 through 9 is that God reveals his character and his glory to Moses. Picking up in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what do a disobedient, wayward, rebellious people need to hear? They need to hear that wrapped up in who God is, is this revelation of his goodness, this revelation of his faithfulness, that he, at the core of who he is, is love keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the father of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses hears this. He hears this depiction. He sees God pass and says, Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Do you ever get the sense that this is repeatedly our prayer before the Lord? Man, when we evaluate our weeks, when we evaluate our families, when we kind of evaluate uh, the year 2019 and just kind of where I am and where I want to be, do you ever have this sense that this is kind of who we are all over again? We are a stiff-necked people. We were people decidedly set on having our own way and then compartmentalizing God or kind of bringing him along on our journey instead of us joining him on his. Moses recognized this for the people of Israel. And God recognizes this for us. And so even in the midst of their disobedience, God renews his covenant with them, starting in verse 10. And God says, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I would do marvels such as have not been created in the earth or any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God sees them in their disobedience. He sees them in their waywardness, and he redeems them. God's love is decidedly redemptive. We experience in the midst of our waywardness. We experience it in the midst of our backsliding. And we pray for it in the midst of our family that don't desire him. 
We pray for God to be seen by them as redemptive, and we pray for them to come to this understanding and awareness that they are desperately in need of redemption. God's love to visit them in favor. One of the amazing things about God's love is that it doesn't just catch us in the midst of our disobedience, but God's love precedes our disobedience. Writing uh, 150, 200 years prior to the event, the prophet Isaiah is, is living in the midst of Israel and he's describing to them what it's going to be like for them to live in Assyrian captivity. But when you get into chapter 43, he begins to write and he begins to address what it is for them to be, what it is for Judah to be in captivity in Babylon. And so this hasn't happened yet. These things are a couple of hundred years in the future. But what we see is that God's love is moving in preparation for those who would be in a future disobedient. God's love precedes your disobedience. Now, this shouldn't drive us to say, okay, hold on, let me understand this. I'm already forgiven, so I can just do whatever the heck I want to do because God's love's already waiting on me on the far side. What this should do is it calls us to a radical reorientation of our heart that says God is so bent, so motivated, so in moving towards love, uh, so moving in love towards me that his love is already anticipating my inability to keep steadfast in obedience towards him. God's love proceeds and covers our disobedience. So Isaiah writes to those who had not yet been born, and so that those who would find themselves in the midst of captivity in Babylon would read these words from the first three verses of chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who, who formed you, O Israel. God reminds them that they're not just uh, wandering pilgrims sojourning throughout this land that they are a people who have his blessing. That they are a people who have the imprint of his hand. That they are a people whom he has created. So he tells them this in the midst of their captivity. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. Think about the impact of hearing these words. That God has sent you and all of your family to live in the midst of captivity, that you live at the, at the whims of a despot, that you live in this land dislocated from your home, not knowing if you'll ever come back. And in the midst of this, suffering the effects of your disobedience, you're, you hear this word from the Lord, I have redeemed you you. I want you to know this today, that all the things that 2019 held for you and all the things that 2020 will, that God knew how this year would go for you prior to you entering into it, that he knew all the personal victories that you would encounter and he knew all the, and the personal setbacks you'd experience. And still in the midst of this, he has already set his heart and his purpose to redeem your failures to celebrate with you in your victory. So God redeems this people. He says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God's self-revelation to them is to be the one who has saved them, the one who has set them apart. 
His love was already there waiting for them prior to their going into captivity so that when they arrived there, they could be certain of his love for them. God's love precedes our rebellion. And so he is waiting for us to receive his love even in the midst of our disbelief. When we consider the nativity, we read a section from Luke two moments ago when we consider the nativity and, and what it is that God did not sit by in abstraction and just kind of distantly and remote and watch our suffering and our sorrow, but he took on flesh. He bore our weakness. He bore our frailty and he came in the form of a child. And so he's found there lying in the manger and he's found there in this and, and it engenders all these things in us this, this feeling of kind of sentimentality these feelings of encouragement these memories of, of where we were and what we've experienced in all the midst of the various Christmases that we've celebrated and all the various Christmases that we've made it through but if we stop there at the nativity and we're merely heartened and encouraged then we miss the supreme display of God's love. You see, God doesn't merely show us his love by coming and investing himself and allowing uh, himself to, to be born as a baby. But love comes in this person of Jesus who not, not, not merely finds himself in the manger, but finds himself headed towards the cross. The love of our God is sacrificial. Where we began in 1 John 4, he says that, that God is love. As we continue to read in this understanding, we recognize that God is not merely love in this sense of we love, but God is love. And his love, and according to verse 9, it was made manifest among us in that this, God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. We experience God's love not through merely reading it in his word, but we experience God's love through receiving his son whom he sent. And we live our lives through Christ. Verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is an amazing thing. We consider where we are in the midst of December in 2019, what it means for us for God to redeem us and what it means for us for God's love to precede our failures. Before you were born, before your parents drew breath, it was the plan of God to redeem you through the Son. That he would send his Son, Jesus, to be born in this lowly state, to be raised by earthly parents to grow in faithfulness and to head always towards displaying his faithfulness and his sacrifice in the cross. So Jesus is displaying the love of God and heading towards the cross and in dying in your stead because he's painfully aware, intimately familiar with all your various weaknesses, with all our various failures that we might be able to step into any room full of any people and summarily describe them as being stiff-necked and wayward, constantly backsliding and struggling. 
but that God precedes our birth in already committing to sin Christ, already committing and purposing in his heart to redeem us and extending to us and asking us if we will receive this gift of sacrifice. But we know even in the midst of these things, we say, man, I I recognize this understanding that God's love is incredibly perfect and incredibly amazing and, and, and this is what they were waiting for, this, this advent that love would arrive on the scene, that it would set all things right. All the people held in captivity in Babylon would say, when God's love shows up, we're going to return to the land. They return to the land, and they say something's still missing. And that when Jesus was born as a baby, they said, finally, the Messiah's here, and, 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 and everything's going to be set right. But something still wasn't quite right. And even in his death and their union with God, they would say, we have been set right with God, but our world is still wayward we still suffer in the midst of this because the rule of love does not reign. It does not reign in the hearts of all mankind. And so even today, even today, we look and we await God's perfect love's rule and reign. John gives us this glorious picture of it in Revelation 21. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Man, we await the perfection of all things. God visiting us once again in the second coming of Christ. Verse 5 says, And he he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we begin to consider God's love. Begin to come to this understanding that God's love has always been there, that he has created us to know him, that he has sent us out so that others would, that he is redeeming us in the midst of our failures, preceding us in the midst of our rebellion, sacrificing himself so that we would come to know him. We begin to ask the question of of what difference does it make? When we think about Revelation, it shows us the short-lived nature of our sadness. We begin to go through this life experiencing setback and difficulty and loss. And all these things have this tendency and this desire to be completely overwhelming to us. When you think about the loss of our loved ones, we think about the difficulties we experience in this life. They have this terrific desire and in some sense this capacity to overwhelm us in all that we are. But Revelation reminds us of the short-lived nature of our sadness. God's love reminds us that even in the midst of feeling alone, some of us on the 25th, we're going to wake up and we're going to have no one to celebrate with. We're going to have no presents to open up except for maybe one of the two that we got for ourselves. And, 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 and in some sense, it could just be the same thing you wrapped last year. Oh, look, empty box all over again. Put that back and keep that box and wrap it again next year. I wonder what I'll get me. And man, when you think about Christmas, it's not a sense of family coming together. It's not a sense of people joining you together. It's a reminder, once again, that everybody around you 
is, is delighted and joyous, but you are experiencing sadness and sorrow. The love of God is a reminder that you are not alone. And you're not alone. Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples in the Gospel of John, he said, I'm going to depart, but I'm going to send another to you. And he describes the Holy Spirit as a comforter. So even though you may wake up on Christmas Day and you may have not another person to spend Christmas with, but you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are indwelt by his spirit and it is impossible for you to be alone. Man, God's love can overcome sadness, it can overcome loneliness, and it comes through the person of Jesus. We're reminded on the basis of God's love that God's love calls us to reconciliation. Some of us, the gift that we need to give someone else this year is forgiveness. Some of us, the gift that we need to receive from someone this year is forgiveness. Some of us, when you wake up Christmas, no matter how glorious, no matter how grand the things that you open or the things that you give are, you're going to have this nagging and this rolling around in your heart because you are intimately acquainted with grief because you have a fractured relationship. You no longer have a relationship with your parents. You no longer have a relationship with your children, your friends, your siblings. There is some deep-seated grief in you because you are intimately, acutely aware of the absence there. Man, I can tell you, if you are a person who has received the love of God through Jesus Christ, then God has made you an agent of reconciliation. And the gift that God would have you to give is the gift of your forgiveness. Would you consider giving it this year? Would you consider receiving that gift from someone who has wronged you? Man, as we consider the difference God's love makes, as we consider the difference God's love makes, we recognize that God's love radically reorients our hearts and our minds. I was thinking maybe two or three weeks ago, and I was just trying to remember all the various gifts I got at different years. It's, it's kind of a challenge. Do I still have my mental ability to remember these things? And I did really well for, for certain years, and certain years I'm like, ooh, that was a really bad gift. Parents failed. Or maybe I just failed to tell them exactly what I wanted. I seem to have gotten a lot of really bad gifts as I went through. Anyway, so I'm, so I'm going through and, and thinking about all these various gifts that I've given, all these various gifts that I have received. And man, some of them, I, I, could just, I remember the emotion kind of tearing through the paper and opening these things and being caught up and captivated with so much excitement and so much joy. I remember... Uh, even better, as, as a parent, when you wrap things for your kids, it, things as a husband that your wife has bought, researched, and then as they're opening it, she says, it's this. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you're so amazing. Thank you for that. And so you're, you're excited for your kids. You're excited to see them open this and see uh, the joy be found in their eyes. 
all of these things fail, all of these things pale, and all of these things are going to go to the garbage heap of life, no matter how great and how glorious they are. The greatest gift you could ever receive is the gift of God's love. And when we go through our lives with the understanding that this gift has been offered for us and we have received it, we have believed in Christ and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, it completely transforms and reorients our hearts and our minds. And this is the experience of God's love that he calls us to. But man, I'm deeply aware that there are those of us, even in this room, who have yet to experience the reception of this gift of love. And my prayer for you is that you would come to believe that this creator God has created you and he has created you to know him and that moved in his love for you prior to your birth, prior to your disobedience, he purposed in his heart to send his son Jesus to die in your stead so that the failures and transgressions of your life, so that your inability and incapacity to be perfect and to faithfully live out his rule and his law and to uphold his character, that God would die in your place in the person of Jesus. That dying in your place and suffering justly the wrath of God, and being raised again. And Jesus sitting exalted at the right hand of the Father, he bids you come. As we move into a time of prayer, and would you join me and pray for your lost friends and family? Would you pray for us as a community that we would be a, a church who would be mightily at work in our community extending this gift of love? And we pray for those in our midst who have yet to set themselves in submission to Christ, asking him to come in to save them and receiving God's great gift of love. Let us pray. God, I'm thankful for the weightiness of your love. God, that you have saved us mightily. God, that you have saved us finally and that you have saved us fully in the person of Jesus. So God, I pray for those who have yet this morning to receive your love, to receive the forgiveness afforded them in the person of Jesus and in his sacrifice. God, that, that you would be at work in their hearts, convicting them of sin and calling them to yourself in love. God, I pray for those of us who even now we're so stuck and marred in remembering our failures from this year and asking this question, can I possibly still be loved by him? God, I'm thankful for the picture you paint of the Israelites, that, that your love is redeeming, and that your love is preceding our rebellion. So God, would you cause those of us who have already been united to you to experience your love yet again? Father, we thank you for your goodness, for an opportunity to study your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom we have love and forgiveness. And we submit these things to you in his name. Amen. Amen.